for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, good morning, church. Uh, I just want to say, we made it. Uh, it's finally 2021, and we're out of the crazy year of 2020. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I started to get really tired of talking about 2020. It was exhausting. I just wanna, but I just want to say before uh, we dive into the text today, it's an absolute privilege to be up here talking with you guys today. Uh, to be standing in the same place as men like Micah Caswell, it's just something I'm really not worthy of. I mean, I mean it. <laughs> uh, it's really an honor to be up here. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, flip to Job 28, and just put your finger there, just hold your place there. This may or may not be a chapter uh, you're familiar with, but hopefully by the end of the day today, you'll see God wisdom and suffering intermingled in a fresh way. So as you're turning there, here's what our time will look like today. We're going to talk about 2020. I know, I know. Uh, I thought we were done with that, but uh, we are. But 2020 was a year, I think, of universal suffering. Uh, we can't just skip past the difficulty and pain in life. And we, we can't just skip past the pain and difficulty of 2020. I want to challenge all of us uh, to reflect on some things that we might have glazed over, whether we're conscious of it or not, namely the pain. God's means of changing us and growing us and increasing our love for him is almost never through easy times, right? But it's the hard times that he changes us. Many of us have had hard times in 2020. In fact, I would argue we all had hard times in 2020, however big or however small. Once we talk about that, we're going to dive into the fascinating book of Job. Uh, if you're new to church or new to Redeemer, then welcome. I'm not the usual guy who speaks, so if it's awful, just come back next week. I won't be here. Um, but seriously, if you're new to the Bible or new to the book of Job, we'll cover the basics of Job and his story uh, before we get to chapter 28. After that, I hope to prove two things to you today. One, an effective way to pray to God in suffering, and two, what to do in the midst of it. But before we dive in, let's bow our heads and pray. God, you are so good to us. We thank you so much simply for who you are. We love to shout your name, O oh Lord. I just pray that you would be with us today, that your spirit would be on all of us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and a heart to embrace. I pray that you'll be glorified today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have any, any of you guys ever been lost? Maybe you can think back in a time when you were a kid and got lost in a grocery store and you're looking for mom. Uh, or maybe you've been in a foreign country and you didn't quite know how to get around. I can relate to both of those things, especially the mom one in the grocery store. I always got lost. Um, but it reminds me of a story of an American professor. 
who went for a year in Oxford to study as a visiting academic. When he and his wife arrived, they were looking around one of the older parts of the college where he was going to be a member. They'd never been there before and kind of were exploring on their own. Well, one of the structures in the courtyard looked like the remains of an ancient, crumbling stone building. Didn't seem like anyone was there, and so the eyes of his wife were going from window to window, looking for some sign of life, some echo of energy, some form of being. Are we alone here? She asked. There must be something more that we're not seeing. Where are all the students? What's going on? They felt confused, blindsided, and totally dependent on some sort of help from some sort of someone. I believe many of us have asked God similar questions this past year. 2020 was a particularly unique year in regard to suffering. I remember back in March when all this was, was starting out, I remember getting email after email from companies that I had bought something from or subscription services that I had subscribed to. And they were telling me about how they were adjusting their services because of COVID-19 and, and all of that stuff. But they pretty much all used like one word to describe the times we were entering into. Can you guess what word I'm talking about? Unprecedented. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Well, that word means never done or known before. It means this is a first. In a lot of ways, that really does sum up 2020. It was the first time as a church that we struggled to find the balance of meeting together, like it says in Hebrews 10:25, And at the same time, submitting to our governing authorities, as it says in Romans 13, we struggled. We struggled together. We also struggled individually with the loss of jobs, loss of recreation, and even loss of loved ones, we struggled. Of course, the loss of things outside of us, like jobs, recreation, and loved ones, has a serious negative effect inside of us. According to the CDC, and I quote, U.S. adults reported considerably elevated adverse mental health conditions associated with COVID-19. Younger adults racial and ethnic minorities, essential workers, and unpaid adult caregivers reported having experienced disproportionately worse mental health outcomes, increased substance use, and elevated suicidal ideation. We've struggled. We've suffered. We've been through trials. If you're suffering now, I invite you not to turn away from God, as is the temptation in some in some cases, but towards him. My hope is that I give you words to your struggle and rest in the midst of your pain. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, I actually didn't struggle that much last year. Then I want to encourage you to look around because someone near you is. This message is for the sufferer and the counselor. But remember, somehow, some way, Suffering enters everyone's door. Sometimes you see it coming, sometimes you don't. But it will come because none of us can escape the brokenness that is the world that we live in. It's a mysterious thing, suffering. No book, I think, in the Bible oozes as much mystery as Job. And similarly, I believe no year in our lifetime has oozed mystery more than 2020. That's why I've titled this message, The Mystery of Suffering. 
But Job experienced the brokenness of the world that we live in. Do you remember his story? Job's story is, I think, one of the best known in the Bible, but one of the least understood. Needless to say, we all likely know at least something of the suffering of Job. If not, that's okay. If you're unfamiliar with the story, and before we get to chapter 28, here's what it's about. Job is a true account of a man named Job uh, who was a real believer in God way back in the day, like way back. But in the very first verse of the book of Job, it says he feared God and turned away from evil. Then later on, it says that the Lord himself even declared Job to be a blameless and upright man. In other words, this guy's the real deal. He's not pretending to believe in God. He really believes. He'd even wake up early to offer burnt offerings for his 10 kids, saying, maybe my kids sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And then one day, everything changed. His oxen, camels, and donkeys got stolen. His sheep and his servants died. And worst of all, all 10 of his children died. That's all in one day. Job was devastated. But how did he respond? He tore his robes, shaved his head, and worshipped. What an amazing response. But then after seeing the response of Job, his wife then told him to curse God and die. Job went through the ringer, right? And all this is just laid out in the first two chapters of the book. The first two chapters are typically the parts of the story that we're familiar with, especially if you've been a Christian a long time or are familiar with the book of Job. We likely know those first two chapters. But I think it's what happens in chapters 3 to 37 that I believe is the least understood part of Job. What happens next is that Job's three friends see his anguish and they try and comfort him. What makes it hard to understand is that it's all Hebrew poetry which doesn't rhyme like English poetry nowadays. Uh, More so, half the time, it seems like his friends are right and Job is wrong, right? It's very confusing, only to find out that God later on at the end of the book calls his friends out for being wrong and then says that Job spoke rightly of the Lord. How are we supposed to understand that? It's confusing. But it's the majority of the book Well, here's what's going on with Job's comforters, if you're familiar with that back-and-forth argument. They believe in a God who's supreme. We would likely say, amen. We do, too. They also believe in a God who's just, and we would say, amen. That's true. But those are the only two things in the theology of his comforters. So if God is supreme and God is just, and that's all there is to God, therefore, God will reward virtue and punish wrongdoing. So at the root, Job's friends think his suffering is his fault. They believe God punishing Job is what's going on for his wrongdoing. The real problem, though, is that according to that theology of Job's friends, there's no such thing as undeserved suffering. They think he must have done something to deserve it. Then the flip side, if that's true... The flip side of their theology is that when something good happens, it's the same answer. He must have done something to deserve it. You see, the the comforters believe in the law 
but not in the gospel. What they don't believe in is undeserved suffering. Therefore, they don't believe in undeserved blessing. So they're law people. And so some of what they say is true, which is why it's hard to understand their argument, but they're not gospel people, which means they don't believe in grace. They view things in a moral way, not a redemptive way. But that doesn't really answer why it's so long, does it? Why is the most confusing section the longest section? And I think it's because there's no instant working through grief. There's no quick fix to pain. There's no message in a nutshell. God gave us this 42-chapter journey with no shortcuts. One thing we can understand from Job is that he suffered. He says in chapter 14 that his days were short and full of trouble. And just like the wife of the professor wandering around the campus of Oxford, Job felt alone. Job's suffering made him ask the same questions. Am I alone? Is there something I'm not seeing? Why is this happening to me? Why is the journey so confusing? Think back on 2020. Maybe you've asked some of those questions. Maybe your suffering has carried into 2021. Maybe 2021 hasn't solved all the, all the issues like we might have thought it, it would have. Can you relate to Job today? Well, let's dive into the middle of the book and I hope we get a glimpse into the incredible insight that Job learned on his journey of suffering. So, flip back open to Job 28. Uh, in the story, this chapter comes right after Job and his three friends were arguing back and forth about the reason he was suffering. So my attention on this chapter is, is not to uh, deeply exegete, but to securely anchor. So follow along with me as I read verses 1 to 11. Surely there is a place for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust and copper is smelted from the rock. Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit he searches out, the rock in gloom and deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot, they hang and swing to and fro far from men. The earth, from it comes food, and underneath it is turned up by fire. Its rocks are the source of sapphires, and its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the base. He hews out channels through the rocks, and his eyes sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden, he brings out to light. You see what I mean by Hebrew poetry? It's really not like our poetry. But I hope we can all see the scene that that text is setting. The text is about mining, digging, searching. It's about working hard for something. In this case, the search is for gold or in, in precious jewels. I don't think any of us are minors. Some of us are adults. Uh, bad joke. Bad joke. But <laughs> this is incredibly uh, difficult work. Sure, you can dig the ground with a shovel, but you've got to switch to a pickaxe pretty quick when you hit rock. 
All for what? A chance at finding something precious. What is difficult about this passage is understanding what it means. We get what it's literally saying. It's talking about mining and things like that. But what did it mean for Job? And what does it mean for us? One thing I want to point out about this passage is, if you can imagine mining, it's exhausting. Think back like 100 years, you know, before we had these big machines that would dig for us. Now think further back to like Job's time, right? They didn't even have sophisticated ways of making tools that would last and efficiently dig and all that stuff. It would just be exhausting to dig and dig and mine and mine. Secondly, I want to point out the loneliness of it. Verses 3 to 4 and verses 7 to 8 make that clear. Follow along at verses 3 to 4. He says, man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep shadow. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They're forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. And then down to seven and eight. That path, no bird of prey knows. And the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Do you get a sense of that loneliness? But back to the question. What did this mean for Job and for us? I mean, really, what is the author of Job trying to communicate to us in these 11 verses? Well, I think we Christians don't like to think about being absolutely helpless in the hands of our God. I mean, with all our faith, with all of his grace, we still prefer to maintain some semblance of control over our lives. When difficulties come our way, we like to think that there are certain steps we can take or attitudes we can adopt to alleviate our anguish and be happy. Sometimes there are things we can do to do that. But anyone who's truly suffered will know that when it comes to the real thing, there's no help for it. No human help whatsoever. Simply put, we're in a deep, dark hole, and we cannot think our way out. Neither can we sing, pray, or even love our way out. In fact, there's absolutely nothing either we or anyone else can do to better our situation. We can have faith, yes, but in itself, faith will not change anything. Neither faith nor any good thing that a person might have or do can actually lift the cloud or teleport us out of the valley or bring about an end to the problem. It's a scary thing to realize that there's nothing that we as humans can do to control suffering. If we look to ourselves, I mean, we're helpless. That's what the mining and searching means in this text. We exhaust ourselves trying to figure it out on our own, trying to find something, trying to just be happy. It's powerful imagery. The mining and digging are symbolic for, I think, what our bodies go through in times of deep suffering and sadness. It's truly exhausting. And it's not always physically exhausting either. I think suffering can completely drain our mental and emotional energy. Secondly, as we talked about just a little while ago, suffering is lonely. Can you relate to the words gloom and deep darkness? Can you relate to being in a valley? Do you feel forgotten? 
Suffering is lonely. It feels like no one around us understands, and I think many times that's true. Well, let's see what Job says next in this, in this text. Look at verse 12 with me. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? I don't know about you guys, but in my own times of deep sorrow and loneliness, I worked and I struggled in finding out the answer to one simple question. My inclination was to go that way, to find answers. Do you know what question I asked? The question of why. Why, God? Why did someone close to me commit suicide? Why did the girl I thought I was going to marry back in the day leave me? Why did a close member of my family get abused? Why, God? Job's asking why. He's saying, where can I find wisdom? Where can I go to understand? But keep reading with me until verse 22, starting in verse 13. Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not in me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it. Nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold or glass cannot equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. And the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. You see what Job's saying, right? He's saying that wisdom and understanding simply can't be found on earth. Not even the deepest depths of the world contain it. Not even the most precious diamonds can purchase it. If only Job or any believer could gain access to that understanding, then the question why would be answered. Job will know why all this happened to him. Or he would if he found that understanding. And at last, he wouldn't be suffering in gloom and darkness. Now, this isn't the first time someone has sought wisdom like this, Since the start of the world, since the beginning of humankind, men and women have wanted to find the source of wisdom. Remember the tree of knowledge of good and evil? So that we might become like God? Remember Adam and Eve searching like that? Do you remember maybe searching it so that we might build a tower that reaches to the heavens? The Tower of Babel? And then Deuteronomy 29, 29 Maybe if we found that wisdom, the hidden things might be revealed to us. But we can't find it on earth. That's what it's saying. It's impossible for any human being to find the answer to the question, why? But Job's friends try. Their answer to that question is, because you're an impenitent sinner. Because you're an unrepentant sinner. There's some secret sin you're not repenting of, Job. But Job knows that's not true. There's got to be something else going on here. There's got to be something we're missing. And if the poem ended here, 
It fills us with despair. But it doesn't end here. Let's see how the chapter ends. Look with me at verses 23 to 28. God understands its way, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. I think this section is one of the most brilliant answers to the urgent question that Job's been asking. Where can I go to understand? Why is this happening? But that response doesn't answer the big why question like we thought it might. And it doesn't tell us where it's found. Rather, he says, God understands. He says, God knows. Job corrects his own question, and he corrects our question. He replaces the two-word question of why God with a two-word answer. You know. The mystery of suffering is that we can't know. But the beauty of it is that we know someone who does. Brother, sister, do you believe that today? If you're struggling today and you've asked God that question of why, I encourage you to change your why, God, into a you know, Lord. Pray that in your suffering. And as verse 23 says, God understands. God directs our attention away from our agonized questions and toward himself. He doesn't take us by the hand and lead us to the answers. Rather, he he beckons us to bow before the Lord himself, who knows the answers, but in his wisdom chooses not to tell us. Our eyes are directed away from the search for the architecture and toward the architect. We ask Why doesn't God answer my question? He replies, turn your eyes and your question away from the answer you want and toward the God you need. Even further down in how this chapter ends is verse 28. It shifts from Job speaking and it shifts to God speaking. Verse 28 says, and and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil, that is understanding. Remember how Job began? In fact, the very first verse of Job says that Job feared God and turned away from evil. But now Job himself and every other human being knows for sure that what Job was doing at the start is exactly what he should have been doing towards the end. And it's actually what he and we should continue to do. We shouldn't expect to find wisdom or to know all the answers to our questions, but rather to bow in worship before the one who does and therefore turn away from evil. Well, that's how the chapter ends, but that's not how the book ends. That shift towards God might be what helps you end this chapter in your life, but if you're a Christian... That's not how your story will end. 
I love how Sandra McCracken puts it in her song, Fool's Gold. She says, if it's not okay, then this is not the end. She says, it's not okay, so we know that this is not the end. Do you remember how Job ends? Maybe those of you who are familiar with the book. It ends with God appearing to Job in a whirlwind. It ends with God appearing in power. It ends with God proclaiming his glory. And more so, do you remember how Job responds? He's blown away, right? God shows up in a whirlwind. This is what he says. I've uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. In other words, he's saying, I was trying to understand your ways, but they were too high. I was trying to discover knowledge, but it was too wonderful. Earlier, Job said in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. Some of you know the song that goes along with that. And then he continues, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. Job's redeemer finally came to him. The Lord answered out of the whirlwind, and Job said, now my eye sees you. Job was a very wealthy man with all of his oxen, camels, and sheep and servants. That's how it began. It's interesting, the unique you-like arc of the story of Job. It begins with God and flourishing, and it ends with God and flourishing. Because not only does God come back, like he was in the beginning, but Job's prosperity comes back. And not only restored, but doubled. So what do we do with this? I mean, we see what happened, right, with Job. We see how You know, the Lord in the end got his riches back, but, you know, what do we do with that? Well, one thing I want to point out, like the miners in Job 28, we need to stop working in vain. We need to stop. We need to rest. And as discouraging as it may sound, all of our own efforts in solving the problem or fixing the pain won't work. Most of the time, it has the opposite effect, or at the very least, it just delays the inevitable pain And even though Job's experience was extreme, I think the book of Job helps us realize that undeserved suffering is the normal experience for the people of God. I think if we really get that, um, it'll change how we wake up in the morning. You you know, sometimes we wake up in the morning and we think, man, things things are tough, which tempts us to think, man, this is so weird. Why are times so hard? Then we wake up in the morning, and when things are good, we're tempted to think the opposite. This is normal. This is how it should be. But Job corrects us. It should be that when we wake up and everything's good, we should think, man, this is weird. Why is everything good in my life right now? And when we wake up and things are tough, we should say, that's what it said in the book. That's what it means to be a child of God. Secondly, we we turn our eyes away from ourselves and our wisdom and knowledge or lack thereof, into God. Whereas Colossians 2, 3 puts it, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The way that Job did this is instead of asking God why, he preached the truth of God's wisdom and knowledge to himself with the words, you know. And if that present reality isn't enough, in James 
5, 7 to 11, James says to suffering Christians, be patient until the coming of the Lord Jesus. Wait for the coming of Jesus. And in that context, he talks about the perseverance of Job. And what that says to us is that the restoration of Job in the end is an image for us of the restoration we will experience when Jesus returns. In God's kindness, we do receive good things like good paying jobs, healing from sickness, and even kids. But God doesn't promise those. What he does promise is that when Jesus returns, everything foreshadowed in Job will be ours. It's a picture of death and resurrection. Where Job received abundantly in the end, we will receive, but not materially. We will receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, and just like Job, completely undeserved. Do you need to see God today? It took a long time for Job. And often in suffering, it feels like an eternity for us. So part of our job today is to restfully wait and to expectantly anticipate the coming of the Lord. But there's a third thing that makes those two possible. What do we do now as we rest and wait? Well, we don't wait passively necessarily, but I think actively. Not in our own strength like the miners, but in the rest that God alone can give. And in that, we can see him today, just not in a whirlwind like Job. We actually see him how Job wanted to see him. We see him in the suffering of Jesus. We see him redemptively. Well, how do we see that? And what is this third way that I'm talking about? The only way we'll get there is in Scripture, is in the Bible. But it's not always easy to understand, especially in suffering. But do you remember the wife of the future Oxford professor wandering around the campus looking for something where the kids are, maybe something, some form of life? Well, oftentimes we look in the Bible and all we see is something like the old courtyard in Oxford. We feel alone, confused, and in need of help. Well, the wife of that future Oxford professor eventually spotted something. What'd she see? When she was in the courtyard, she was looking at the windows. She spotted something, curtains at them, and people working inside. Honey, she exclaimed, these ruins are inhabited. It's a true story, and these ruins are inhabited became the title of a book that uh, they wrote about their experiences that year. Personally, if I visit an old castle or an old mansion, it's so cool to find out that part of it, at least, is still inhabited by a family who's using it like it used to be used. A lived-in building is alive in a way in which a mere tourist attraction, however beautiful, isn't. It breathes. Is your personal experience of the Bible like that woman in Oxford? When just starting out, maybe it looks like a random collection of writing, some Hebrew poetry, history, folk tales, ethical instruction, and some strange stories about some even stranger people. Reading it can seem, at least to begin with, like wandering through an old courtyard. But then, just when you're tempted to give up on the whole thing, you sense movement. 
and life. Something is stirring there. There's an energy, almost like someone's left a light on or music playing. Maybe it's inhabited after all. It seems to have a life, a breath even. The early Christians believed that the reason the scriptures were alive was because God had breathed them in the first place and the warmth and life of that creative breath is still present and powerful. It's an analogy. In hard times, we feel alone. But through, one, trusting in the Lord, two, looking forward to our true and real inheritance, and three, reading scripture. When we do those things, we sense, at least a little bit, that we're not so alone after all. There's a warmth to it. It's sparkling with colors of grace, and God feels present and powerful. This is one of the many things that I'm excited for in Redeemer Denton of 2021. Micah mentioned it in the announcements, but the, the whole reason for us starting the equip class is to equip all of us to study the Bible. I know personally it can seem daunting, but it's not impossible. Um, and yes, this is an advertisement for the equip class. They didn't ask me to do it. Um, but seriously, when studying the Bible, once you spot the curtains and sense the life and see the movement in Scripture, you begin to experience something glorious, something life-giving, something truly hopeful. And we'll conclude with this. Scripture never looks down on the sufferer. It, it never mocks the pain it never turns a deaf ear to the cries, and it never condemns the struggle. Because of this, the Bible, while being brutally honest about suffering, is at the same time gloriously hopeful. It's, it's not just that the Bible tells the story of suffering honestly and authentically, it also gives us concrete and real hope. Suffering in Scripture is never, ever, an end in itself, but is designed as a means to the end of real comfort, real direction, real protection, real conviction, and real hope. You sense a theme there? We have hope. But why do we suffer? Job couldn't know. Job doesn't answer the question. We don't know. We can't answer the question. We can't know the ins and outs of God's plan for us, of his providence. We can't know that. But we can know him. We can trust him. He understands. Close with a quote from Paul Tripp in his book on suffering. The one who rules and understands everything is the definition of all that is right true, faithful, loving, powerful, and gracious. His rule is always good because he is good. So it's very important to not allow the confusion of suffering to redefine for you who God is. Rather, we all need to accept the limits of our understanding while we let God's declaration of who he is in Scripture define the hope we can have because he is with us in our suffering and rules all the details of it. Hope is found not in trying to solve all the mysteries that suffering brings our way, but running into the arms of the one who has no mystery and offers us his presence, power, 
and promises. Scripture presents to the sufferer a God who understands, a God who cares, a God who invites us to come to him for help, and a God who one day promises to end all suffering of any kind once and forever. What an amazing truth, right? We can't completely know why we suffer, but God does. God understands. So the question of the wife of the Oxford professor applies to us. She felt alone, confused, dependent on help. Well, let's ask that in our suffering. Are we alone? No. Are we confused? Maybe, maybe still a little bit, but are we dependent? Absolutely. Dependent on a God who is with us, who loves us, and who is right now making all things new. Let's pray together. God, Father, you are high and you are holy. And you're also gentle and lowly. We thank you that you're a God who doesn't leave us alone in our suffering. We thank you for the truth of Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for your spirit today as you've moved in all of our hearts. I pray that now as we enter a time of worship, you open the eyes of our heart to see and feel you. And as a response, we might praise you for the truth of who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.